Okay, folks, welcome to another PIDE webinar. This is probably the fourth in our series on cities for humanity and development. We are trying very hard to bring very good speakers to you to learn about cities, because as we've talked about it, Pakistani cities have lagged behind by probably two centuries. Leslie, we have no cities in, in, our, city, in our country. We only have villages overgrown villages, because that's what I'm speaking to you from Lahore is a village of 13 million people. And we'll come to that during our conversation. Today, we've got a great speaker, Leslie Wu. Uh, <coughs> Leslie Wu is Metrolink, Metrolink's is his chief city planner. You can see her here. You can see what we're going to discuss. But let me introduce Leslie properly. Leslie is a major voice in cities in Canada and North America. Leslie has been building sustainable communities and planning various things in Toronto, which is, everybody knows, is a major city, for the last 25 years. She looks young, but she's got 25 years of experience behind her. She is now the chief planning officer of Metro Links, which is uh, uh, the, the place which is uh, the transit-oriented development and leads the transit-oriented development there, program there. Metrolinx is Canada's, um, um, uh, the Toronto's um, city transport, city mobility organization, and Leslie is the chief planner for that. Leslie has been uh, Metrolinx has been managing um, road and transport ne transit network in Ontario, which is something Leslie we have never built in Pakistan and we don't intend to. Um, and she's undertaking one of the largest investments in public transport in uh, um, probably the Canadian history. She's leaving Metrolix after 12 years uh, career, and she will be taking on a new role as a CEO of Civic Action, as you might expect. Um, NGOs and these Civic Action type groups are very important in policymaking in a place like Canada. Another thing that we need to learn. Um, She's also ranked as one of the 100 most powerful men, um, women in Canada. She is celebrated for her views on cities, her design excellence, and she has a lot to say on cities in Canada and has an influential voice. She's an important leader in public, private, and non-profit non uh, sectors. Again, something that we need to build. Our public sector does not listen to anybody else. They are in a world of their own. But Leslie's website is something I would recommend. She builds cities.org. And I have seen that website. It's a phenomenal website, very nice website. And it, it highlights women around the world who have led city building, which is a very important concept for us Pakistanis, a country dominated by males to understand. So Leslie's website, I would highly recommend because she features all kinds of women from all over the world. So with that, let me also introduce a young summer intern, Zoya Muhammad Ali. She spent this summer from Toronto being a summer intern at Pide. And I must confess, uh, COVID has made us understand a whole new world. And Zoya did excellent work for us during the summer. She published a paper. She arranged two webinars. This is the third one. And she's given another paper that we are almost about to publish. Now Zoya has completed a successful summer and is going back to Berkeley. So I thought I would urge Zoya, ask Zoya to moderate this webinar. So with those words, I'll hand it over to Zoya. Zoya, please, can you 
converse with Leslie and I will sit there and learn and listen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Huck. Um, hi, Leslie. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Um, I'll just start off by asking if you could please tell us a little about your experience with city development and transit planning in Toronto. Thanks, Zoya, and thank you for the opportunity, and I'm really excited to join the group today. Um, just maybe I'll give a little context about um, uh, the region, uh, Toronto urban region itself, just for folks who don't, aren't familiar. First of all, um, it's about eight, over 8,000 square kilometers is what we refer to as the Greater Toronto Hamilton areas, Toronto being the center of it. It sits on Lake Ontario. Uh, it is home currently to about 6 million people. So your villages um, are much larger than our city. Uh, but, and it's forecast that by 2041, this region will grow to about 9 million. So there are roughly 110,000 people, new, new residents come to this region. So we are growing and have been growing and will continue to grow at that, um, which for Canada, North America is quite a significant rate. Uh, it's made up about 35, 36 municipalities. So different levels of government. We have federal government, we have provincial government and then municipal government. And um, on average, about 75% of trips through the region are done by single occupancy automobiles, which uh, hence uh, are issues around congestion. So my uh, background, I've trained as an architect uh, and did my graduate degree in urban planning. I'm actually, like many Torontonians, not born here. I was born in Trinidad in the Caribbean came to Toronto to do university and stayed. Um, I left architecture early in my career. I'd been practicing for about four years when I decided that, first of all, I wanted to be more directly in contact with the end user and the people who are going to be occupying the buildings. And I felt that I wanted to be part of some more significant impact in terms of affecting people. And this goes back to you know why I chose architecture when you grew up in Trinidad and driving by shanty towns with uh, so much poverty around there's an ingrained kind of social justice element in everything that has driven and me and what i'm passionate about so wanting to have an impact and then wanting to learn more and which is what took me to planning and eventually um took me to where i am uh specifically on transportation because i started in more in planning growth management and then planning um I think there are a couple things that I would say off the bat about city development and in particular transit planning in Toronto in terms of what I would say is lessons learned. Um, the key, especially as a planner now, uh, what I think we uh, often think is that if we can generate the right plan, that that's enough. And of course it's not enough. So the first key things is um, what is the problem? Do people share? Uh, the, the issue or the problem that you're trying to address before you even get to solutions. Is there a burning platform? That's one. And can you build a shared vision that the plan articulates that has many voices to champion the plan and the vision? And then that, that in itself is a huge undertaking to bring to consensus by key influencers and decision makers that there is a common vision that we all agree about where we want to go to. And then you need to be able to have, because plans take long, cities take long time to build and evolve. Well, except perhaps maybe in China, 
but um, uh, they take a while if, if you want to do them well. And so making sure you have uh, an understanding of how to implement not only where you want to get to, but what are the first, second and third steps and how to invest and building and continuing to have that civic capacity to champion and speak for the plan because uh, politicians come, politicians go, uh, visions and plans can go that way too if you don't have a broad constituency to support it. And then I think um, uh, there needs to always be this kind of somewhat understanding that the opportunity uh, to go from plan to action um, are a series of windows of opportunity that come and go and you have to very, be very opportunistic. And at the scale of a city, there's no one action or one silver bullet that's gonna get you where you need to go. So you have to be constantly moving all these elements forward. Um, and some may go, depending on the conditions, uh, certain elements of the city uh, investment or the policies will move at different paces. And you're constantly trying to move things in synchronicity. And that it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an ongoing um, uh, job. And in Toronto, I've been fortunate to be part of two large uh, initiatives that led us to be able to be in a position to invest. Right now we have a, um, it's a $60 billion Canadian dollars investment in transit expansion, which includes subways, light rapid transit, bus rapid transit, and the conversion of our diesel heavy rail, commuter rail to electric uh, rail. But that didn't come about overnight, and um, and it's full of rot with all kinds of issues as well. But I I, I think um, that's where we've come from. But the you know the basis has always been the plan, and we've been through three premiers, uh, two um, I think three or four elections on the provincial side, uh, three cycles of municipal elections, uh, and been able to still to the DNA of what we're doing be in is still on a steady course. Um, so that's, uh, and so I've been party to that journey, uh, both on the private sector side, the not-for-profit side, the municipal side, both political and in the bureaucracy. I've spent some time in the provincial bureaucracy. I was a chief of staff for a minister. So I bring all those perspectives. And when thinking about plans and how to move from plan to action, always putting my, my understanding where every where influencers and decision makers are coming from is a key part of um, being able to drive forward. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so I noticed one of the key things you were mentioning is that you identify and engage the key stakeholders that um, are part of this. So who do you consider to be the key stakeholders in city planning and how do you develop that civic constituency to make sure that you're able to engage people? So I think in order to identify who your constituency, you need to be understanding at many scales, what is it you're trying to address? And I am of the belief, which is, it's not that radical, is that, uh, that we wanna build cities that are uh, sustainable, meaning prosperous, you know, ha have a healthy environment, and contribute to a positive quality of life. So those three elements. And in order to achieve those three elements, you, you have to have a rounded notion of who your stakeholders are. So your stakeholders are um, you know, decision making, so government. Your, your stakeholders are um, uh, people with interests in those areas, so environmental not-for-profits, 
um, business communities, board of trades, it is uh, your uh, social services. And then at the same, um, and at the same time, I think, uh, so bringing all of those together, but you also cannot ignore what I would call the general public because stakeholders are generally informed, uh, people who have some interest or some um, knowledge of the topic. And then there's the general public who may have no understanding of what it is and only know, uh, you know, they're just trying to get, get to work, get to school, uh, pack lunches, get food on the table and these larger, more complex issues. So being able to articulate and communicate these sometimes complex issues in a way that people understand how it's going to affect them or how what is happening to their life is being affected. And so that's a very complex engagement process. Not It's not one town hall meeting. It's not three little um, workshops or focus groups. It's a fairly comprehensive way of and all different channels digital in-person one-on-one big groups you have to design it and when we were doing all our planning we have a whole team who's dedicated to that type of activity and um, in doing that exercise you can begin to first of all identify who you who are the champions you're able to also uh, cultivate new champions and what the most powerful thing about any plan in trying to address a change in, in a city or uh, build a new direction of city is the multiplicity of voices with a common goal. And so that's what the engagement is about. It's not a one way, let me tell you what I want to do. It's an iterative dialogue and not, you know, and, and you have to be patient with it, but you also can't drag it on because people want to see results. Uh, so on your point of building sustainable cities, um, a large part of Pakistan's national budget, not just that of cities, is dedicated to development to accommodate cars. So that includes widening roads, building flyovers, things like that. And our city planners tell us, tell us that this paradigm came from advanced countries like those in North America. Do you agree to that? And how do you plan for mobility in Canada if that is the case? So I think our love affair with the automobile, more than the specific country, there's two things I would think that got us where we are when we look at urban sprawl. Um, I think, and well, maybe three. So our love affair with the automobile, you know, it provides and has been as in, which was what, you know, when it was invented, it's one of the most convenient, customized ways of getting around. So if I'm in a car, um, if I'm by myself or I'm with someone else in my family, I control the music, the car temperature, where I'm going, I can go door to door. So any other way of moving and, and fast in theory, if there's no congestion. Any other thing is everything else is competing with that. So that's number one. Number two, from a land use planning standpoint, the moment we started delaminating uh, types of uses and creating what I call functional plans for cities, meaning schools over here, houses over there, shopping over there. And we, we got away from what we refer to as the main street, everything fully integrated. And in North America, all that zoning started to happen, meaning because we could travel more comfortably in an automobile for further distances, we separated all our daily activities further and further apart. And hence, and, you know, and we ended up with uh, you know, these large tracts of land uh, connected by roads that we then had to you know, invest in. Um, we um, 
and and that led to, you know all the greenhouse gas emissions and CO two carbon monoxide uh, exhaust fumes that we spew out. Um, so I think that so the love of the car, the um, the delamination of land use uh, from and in the North America in particular, the hollowing out of cities is what led to that. And then there's another thing which I would call a socioeconomic issue, which is this notion in particular, what we refer to as the American dream. The, the idea that everyone should own a large tract of land with a house, with a white picket fence and, um, and uh, you know, a driveway with a car and a garage. And that that was what we would all strive for. And that's what um, we needed. I think it's interesting now in this time of COVID uh, um, for a city like Toronto, where we've seen the in the last several years, uh, the real estate market and the economy and the intensification of the downtowns and condominiums growing up. COVID is actually, you know, and we don't know how long this will last. We're seeing um, the market flooding with people trying to sell uh, condos or multi-housing and looking like the values of single family homes are now tipping up. And so, it, you know, it is a cause, you know, we're, we're not sure where it's going to end up, but the suburban uh, uh, sort of notion of this American dream, I think COVID has caused people to contemplate uh, their desire to have private open space. And um, a, a, a condo balcony from a lot of people is not sufficing. But I think that uh, is kind of where it comes from. And uh, I think that's, when here in Toronto, I mean, when we started the growth management plan back in early 2000, uh, th that's kind of what we were pushing against. Uh, the, uh, there was major, most of the major investments were happening in highways and roads. And, um, and the development industry was feeding the desire for more highways and roads because we're, they were developing further and further out. And we had to take, it took uh, political leadership it took a lot of discussion with the development industry because they're the ones investing in this space. And then a lot of work with the public and local um, uh, politicians and, and officials to make the business case for a different way and a different paradigm. And demonstrating that um, more compact, the synergies that you get in a city or more dense areas from and from innovation and technology when people are co-locating um, co and able to work collaboratively, the kind of uh, economies of scale that cities bring, um, the quality of life that can be improved if you can just walk to work or walk where you need to go and get and have a good job. Um, I think the, that was a turn which led to the growth management plan, which was a land use piece that preceded our transportation plan that began to say, okay, we need to kind of hold, intensify, densify, um, because frankly, Canada is a big country and there's lots of land. And if we don't put some discipline around ourselves, uh, we were starting to encroach on the, the aquifers, which are our nat natural so uh, source of fresh water uh, through our development. We were um, you know, eliminating some of the um, uh, habitat that created the biodiversity in our region. And, and so I think we had to give the, make a whole story and, and hard facts and analytics, which is where research institutions and, and different um, uh, agencies and foundations were part of the, of, the, of the work to do that. 
But I think um, that is, it's, that's what, it's a mind shift, right? And people start to recognize it. I think, you know, timing is everything as well. At the same time that we were doing this, the congestion on the roads was just escalating. So people were realizing that they could not sit in traffic and commute times are going up and up and up and that something and that adding more highways was not going to solve the problem. Uh, and, um, and, and, and also recognizing that the region had each part of the region why we're one region economically, um, you know, this, the downtown was different from the edge city, which was different from the suburbs or the, the rural towns. And so the solutions would have to address all that variability. Okay. I think it's very interesting that you pointed out um, that this is something that Canadian cities have you know, embraced and that they went through. Um, but because this is actually an issue that we face in Pakistan today where our planners really hold on to the sprawl-based suburban American dream kind of model of city planning. And you touched on this a little bit, but I also saw that you were the key author of a massive urban uh, intensification initiative in Canada. So based on that, I'm wondering how do you suggest we change our planning paradigm and plan for more density in our cities? Yes, um, how? So it's a combination of so many things. You have to have in, um, leaders, and I mean politicians, senior bureaucrats and a drive. And in many respects, that growth plan that uh, sort of which had, uh, it had two components to it. One, the growth plan, which says, this is how we're going to grow. And we're going to concentrate growth in these areas. Uh, and we had, we had to do all kinds of forecasting and population um, projections. And the counterpoint is there was a whole initiative to create a green belt which is we are going to preserve and protect. Uh, we have this kind of natural feature. We have a, um, the Oak Ridges Moraine, which is where our aquifer is. Um, the Niagara Escarpment is a UN biosphere reserve and it actually cradles the city. So we had a natural feature that we said we didn't want to sprawl beyond and we need to, and we had, we knew growth was coming. So that data, so one is the data to explain uh, two is the ability to translate technical information into a language that regular people can understand. Um, and that would be um, an, a, a politically attractive. So make good planning sense, have le leaders, officials who actually, and, and in hindsight, as I think about it, it was a political drive that pushed the bureaucracy to create the growth secretariat where I was, that I, that I, that I was one of the first, second person to be employed at, that then generated the plan, that then went out to stakeholders and then uh, had the narrative and, and had all the engagement with the development industry and the local municipalities. And then it wasn't enough just to have those conversations, put the legislation in place that required uh, conformity by the municipalities. We have the benefit in Ontario of a planning act, which whereby municipalities have to actually create official plans that the province has to approve. And so we had that already in place. And then we layered on this growth plan, which set out specific uh, areas. 
And the plan was built not by uh, academics, not by bureaucrats or technocrats. Uh, it was steered by a group of uh, mayors and chairs from around the region. And they brought in all kinds of people. I, you know, it was a multidisciplinary. We had one of the biggest land developers on the committee. We had one of the largest environmental um, not-for-profit, uh, the, the, the leader in that group. Um, and then we had groups that are focused on, on traffic. We had uh, groups fo focusing on the strategy. And we kind of brought that together. So you had this critical mass of support. And that began to make the shift. It did really happen from the top, right? There was a supporting bubbling from the general public. Um, but the ability to translate that public desire uh, into action required, you know, sort of, you know, it's a carrot and stick exercise. So I, um, I think that's how we were able to move it. And then the next layer on, so there was the, what I call the planning legislation. And then the big piece that makes all this happen is the infrastructure to support that plan and the investment in the infrastructure that is in synchronicity with that plan. And that you, so it's both a stop, start, continue exercise. What is it we're not gonna invest that we have been that is not contributing to this strategy and plan and what is missing and what should we continue and the stopping part is the hardest part so the shift from you know how are we going to you know do how the money that we're putting into highways how is that going to because we still need roads it's not this is not an anti-car anti-road plan and so we had to then think develop the transportation plan and that was my that's how i became involved with metrolinks is because we had the legislation on land use but we didn't have the infrastructure to connect all these um, um, de uh, sort of um, urban growth centers. And then that was the kind of push. And then because the local politicians hadn't been involved with that first plan, we brought some of them onto uh, the board for Metrolinks to build the consensus for the investment in the infrastructure and the transit infrastructure in particular to support that uh, land use plan because they had been about 15 or 20 before that 15 or 20 years of no investment in transit complete underinvestment and the plan because the same champions moved to then talk about how they were going to um, help uh, direct what is basically limited funds it's not infinite mm -hmm. uh, and sit around and decide how we would uh, basically uh, prioritize the investments in transit, those that would have the highest impact being the most um, critical to start. And as you can imagine, the tensions between the downtown and their needs, which is latent needs, is high demand, and, and more suburban um, towns and, and cities on the edge where the, there was, they're trying to grow their ridership and grow their support for transit and, and reduce their dependency on the automobile. And so that second layer of work, which is the transportation plan with a similar approach around the consensus around it, but in support of a land use plan, they went in that sequence and that really helped. Because if you try to just go at the transportation plan, but you don't have the land use to support your investment, uh, it'll be a struggle. If you have the land use plan, but no infrastructure to support that land use plan, you're also at, at, a, at a, a, uh, it's difficult. 
And I think, you know, we went at it, uh, you know, but there was much debate even when we're going, we're doing the land use growth management plan, people saying, well, I don't, this is just a dream because we're not going to invest in it, but we had to get that done before we could kind of uh, firm up the transit infrastructure investment. So building on that transportation piece, I know one of your um, key areas of expertise is transit planning. And again, the dependence on cars in Pakistan has led to car dependence sprawl. And like I said, a lot of adverse environmental impacts as well. So our streets have no sidewalks and there are no bicycle tracks because planners don't allow for those kinds of modes of transportation. So in your opinion, how should our city governments address this transportation? That's a tough question because I don't really know the Pakistani government very well. I can tell you from a little bit about my experience. And, and, and so, so I think when we think about transit planning and it's really about movement of people and goods, um, I think the history of transportation planning, which has primarily been engineering driven, which is about the movement of machines. And so we design for machines in the same way in, you know, highways are designed for automobiles, they're pieces of technology. One of the big shifts um, in how we addressed uh, our tra original transportation plan and, the and also then the second version, the 2041 plan, was a focus on people. And the focus on the, ex the, the, the traveler and every journey begins on foot and ends on foot. So you have to get out the door, walk to whatever, uh, and uh, whether you're walking to a bus, a bike, a car, walking to, uh, so it begins and ends in, in, with walking. And then <clears throat> what is it that's important uh, as, as an individual to how you wanna get from A to B? Reliability, comfort, um, and you know, affordability um, and convenience. So if you think about those things and you're designing for that, you then want to layer on the notion of choice. So if I only have one choice and we have communities in this region where the only way to get around is a car, there is no choice. You want to create an environment that, is, that offers choice. And so I, you know, where I live, I can, I can, well, I just move, but right now I can walk to work, but I used to live a place I could get there by train, by streetcar, by subway, by bicycle. It was a little too far to walk. But I had choice, but there are parts of this region there were no choice. And in fact, you know, uh, there are areas where people have three, four cars because there's a large family and everybody's going and working in different directions. But you have to create choices that are competitive with an automobile. So that realization, when we thought about and we were creating the plan, we started to create a whole series of um, uh, data analytics, understanding, research around as much as uh, understanding, you know, subways and uh, light rapid transit and so forth, but active transportation, walking, cycling, ride share, car share, um, all those modes uh, and to begin to kind of uh, invest or partner with the private sector or the not-for-profit sector in those spaces. And it was not one or the other. We had to move and each one went at a different pace because, you know, a multi-billion dollar light rapid transit, it, the effort to do that versus a 
sidewalks and bike bike lanes, their their implementation are is different. I mean, I've the dramatic change we've seen in Toronto by the championship of the local municipality on introducing bike lanes has been a long slog. Uh, and in fact, if anything, COVID has helped. We've sort of propelled our investment in bicycle transit because nobody wants to go uh, in uh, during the, the lockdown and, and transit did suffer in terms of ridership. People wanted to be outside. They didn't want to be in an enclosed space and our bicycle infrastructure has expanded. But I think you know it, it is that mind shift from machine to people and making it people centric really shifts your understanding of um, what is important and, and that it is about mobility, it's not about machines. Yeah, I've definitely noticed part of that shift happening in Toronto as well. Um, so shifting gears a little bit away from transportation uh, towards more a discussion about public spaces. So Pakistani cities have an extreme shortage of spaces for education, health, commerce, office, leisure, and just public and community use in general. So is this unique to Pakistan or do you face these issues in Canada as well? And if so, how do you handle them? So, so, so in Canada, we don't have a space issue. Like we've got infinite space. So when you say space, if in anything we have, it's, it's the investment in all those things that make complete communities. And, um, you know, the, the choice, you know, budgets are tight, um, uh, officials have to make choices. And so, you know, social services, libraries, schools, community centers, um, we go through different, you know, we have a, a sort of, I would say a variety um, of investment. Some, some, so for example, our library system is one of the longest standing, most utilized, most successful uh, public library systems in North America. My kids grew up in a library. They, they have programs for kids. Um, uh, children are introduced to books and libraries. They're part of the community. And part of it was, you know, goes way back um, when the Carnegie, um, uh, the philanthropic investments of the Carnegie Foundation into public libraries across North America. And we still have that legacy to this day and it's been there. So it's a longstanding thing. We have the investments of the YMCAs in um, community and health and exercise centers uh, in throughout our region. So we have these kind of anchors. Uh, what I would say is that as the region grows um, and we start building more and more housing, um, and because that's the first thing we the reflex is to and where the investment is, the planning, the planners, and particularly in the cities and, and the larger cities have, a, you know, really um, have to make a hard push for adequate open parks and open space, uh, schools, and, um, and those kinds of, and it, it happens through the planning process. And um, whenever um, a developer comes uh, to build more housing or a new office building, the city sets aside as part of their development application process, they have uncharged development fees. They put a, a levy uh, that they have to pay as a part of the price, not just your building permit cost, that goes towards investment in those kinds of services. There's a, always a debate about whether it's not enough. Developers will say it's too much. The public will say 
it's not enough. But that is how we try to preserve a pool of money for the investment. And then in those discussions, try to have the, uh, with the individual developments, have a, a conversation around where those kinds of facilities fit within their development. The planners here, and most of them do uh, what we refer to as in an official plan, secondary planning, which is like a precinct plan. Uh, they do that ahead of development and investment. Or if there's an existing community and there's infill, they try to make sure that, that they're the ones trying to calibrate that balance. So if um, planners don't see that as part of their role in building complete communities, not just deciding how tall or how wide or you know fire hazards and all that kind of stuff, uh, you will fall behind. So planners have a responsibility in my mind to uh, really being sure, ensuring that they are helping uh, you know cities, towns, uh, make uh, build cities that are what I call 360, uh, cradle to grave, that you can uh, be born in a place and die in a place and everything that you need should be there. Uh, and, and so that's what the idea of complete. So complete choices about how to move around, choice about education, choice about the supports if you're a senior, uh, that you don't have to move far away from your family or if your family is supporting you, uh, all the services you need are accessible. So, but that's, a, you know, that's the art of good planning. If we, I mean, it'd be easy if we just had to plan for one sector or one group or one dimension. Cities are very multidimensional. I really like this idea of complete cities. That's definitely one we have to adopt. Um, so those are actually all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much, Leslie, for joining us. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Hub, who I believe will continue the conversation. A couple Thank of you. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for a wonderful exposition. I have a couple of questions that I'll ask before we go to the floor. I know you're short of time, uh, but uh, very quickly, Leslie, uh, the Soviet Union fell in 1990, but city planning refuses to die. Is city planning the last vestige of socialism? There's a reason we've, cities have, they're eternal. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a great question because we're having this, you know, there's this whole discussion with COVID and this, this, this um, here in Toronto, and we're not as dense as where you are, um, the flight from the city. People want, you know, they don't want to be with all this, all these people and all this, um, you know, sharing of space and sharing. And, and um, so the issue of socialism hasn't come up. It's more around, it's like a, a very individualistic thing. And cities are not individualistic, and uh, we are social beings. And I, despite everyone's desire to kind of go and have more space and not be in a dense area, I believe uh, our innovation, uh, the synergies that are created when different disciplines come together, when opportunity for partnership happens, it doesn't happen in remote, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't happen, but cities give us opportunity for more of that. And that leads often on, in my mind, to growth and prosperity and, um, and an opportunity. And, you know, is that opportunity shared equally? I think uh, cities are one of the best manifestations of the answers, actually. We, the, the public systems 
has to, this is why we have public sector, is count to counter all the sort of gaps that capitalism can't fill. And so I believe that, um, that cities will be eternal, that um, planning is not the last vestige. We are part of what makes or breaks a good city. Uh, um, but it is a long game. It's a long game. Okay, let me tell you why I asked that question. Because, see, Leslie, I agree with you that cities are not only eternal, have been eternal. In fact, history is a history of cities and not of rural areas. I often say that. It began with Rome, Baghdad, Athens, mm -hmm. etc. So, agreed. But city planning is 20th century. City planning didn't happen before 20th century. And right. now the reason I, I'm anti-city planning is my city, sorry, my village, Lahore, 13 million people, we are widening the streets. We've got wider streets than Toronto. I guarantee you. We've got wider streets than New York, than London. Everything is, we've got wide streets. We've got highways running through the city. This is all done by the planner, not by the people. We have been told that we must go into sprawl. Outlaw, sorry, uh, flats have been outlawed. Even schools in my city are outlawed. So maybe... Can, They're can not I dedicated to schools. Yeah. Now, this is all done by the planner, and I could go on. There's an umpteen list. The poor are totally excluded from our cities. They have no... Oops, it's freezing. Uh-oh. Did I freeze or did he... He's frozen. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. I think I get the gist of the question. And maybe if he comes back... What I, here's, I hope he can hear me. Because what I was going to say, that what you're describing is what in the 60s and 70s, when Jane Jacobs wrote The Life and Death of the Great American City, she was bemoaning ex the, the planners. She was not a fan of planners for that very reason. They thought they, un they knew the right way to make a city. And the truth in the matter is, and it, it's how we've evolved here in Toronto, and it sounds like Pakistan needs to move to this place. The planning profession itself has changed. And um, where we understand that planning is not a, I'm the master planner and I will tell you and I know. Planning is an iterative profession where you do have expertise, but it has to be a dialogue with citizens and communities and addressing their needs and um, being able to actually engage. So I talked a whole time about how, are you back? Okay. Oh, you're on mute, you're yeah. on mute. But Sorry. I got your question, so I'm actually ans I'm answering your question. I, I was saying that what you're Go describing, ahead, yeah, what you're describing is what in the 60s and 70s, Jane Jacobs was just going apoplectic about. She was saying the planners, they think they know they're technocrats, they're trying to decree what my city, how my city should be, and I have no voice. What I'm saying is that in Toronto, we have actually, and in many parts of North America, the profession has un, uh, taken that to heart and evolved. It sounds like Pakistan needs some work still in this area. But mm -hmm. we understand now that success in a city is, the planner is the enabler, not mm -hmm. the master planner, let me draw it out for you and just slot you in where you need. Mm -hmm. the, the planning exercise is a political process, it's part of a political process, and it's part of being able to manage all these diverse, but you want to engage in it. 
And so um, I talk a lot about the engagement with different stakeholder groups and the public and town hall meetings. It's not just to check a box. Mm -hmm. It's actually to address what they need mm -hmm. and, and, to, and, to, and to listen mm -hmm. and to actually take it into heart. And that's where you need to get to. And that's where we have, um, we're not perfect at it here, but at the provincial level, definitely at the local municipal level, um, it's not planning as a power trip. It used to be like that here, mm. 70s and 80s, but we've learned from that. And I think that's where, if that's the way you're describing it is now, that's the shift that has to happen. Absolutely correct. And that's a shift that we are trying to make happen with voices like yours. My second question is, when land prices are going through the roof, like they are in Toronto, I know, and like they are in, even here in Pakistan now, how do we accommodate the poor? I mean, it becomes increasingly difficult to accommodate the poor. What strategies do you adopt? And secondly, also, for example, social infrastructure, like you mentioned libraries. Mm -hmm. Now, in 13 million people here, we have no public libraries. So how do we build public libraries when the land prices are so high? How do we build social infrastructure? That's a huge problem for us. And even in terms of, sorry, I'll come to that later, but let's first take this. So I think uh, there's a couple things. And um, all of which in many respects um, originate with leaders who understand that those are important parts of a successful community. So that's number one. If you don't even acknowledge that it's something that housing, affordable housing and housing the poor and shelter for the poor is an important part that, it, that if you disregard that in general in your own psyche, then uh, it's gonna be difficult to push and you're gonna have to push from the bottom up. It won't come from the top down. But I would say that um, there's a couple things and we're, we're struggling with this. I, I, we are not perfect in this area and the issue of um, shelter and affordable housing and locating homeless shelters or respite places, you know, in, in gentrifying neighborhoods where people think that having something like that is gonna devalue their property. There's a couple mm -hmm. mechanisms. Mm -hmm. One, I talked about development charges. So uh, any new in investment or construction, they require a building permit or permits from the municipality. It has a fee. The fee mm -hmm. is a development charge, which is a, a it is um, a percentage of the value of what is being constructed. That goes to the city. The city uh, allocates that, has the option to allocate it to social, um, uh, could be open space, affordable housing, social services, community centers, into their pool of money that they then invest. So that's one. So that's the, how do you pay for it? It's never enough and we still have to get funding from the federal government and the provincial government. The second is what we refer, it's inclusionary zoning. So when you're zoning, you say, um, trans, London does this. Uh, a, you're, you're required to include a certain percentage of affordable housing in your developments. So that, that and, and it could be affordable defined slightly different from social housing or homelessness. So you make that a requirement. This, the other part is um, sort of um, making sure that you have advocacy uh, in, in this area that's constantly pushing governments uh, at, to recognize the important and the, and the need. And, and I think, you know, we've gone through, um, cycles in this region. I think in the 80s, we had one of our biggest pushes in affordable housing, all kinds, co-ops, um, rent geared to income, you know, because all different types. 
And we saw a surge of that. And then the, the governments, you know, fell away from that. And we see that that's, you know, there is the federal government is now investing in it again. But it's not an easy, uh, easy thing. But it starts with actually recognizing that it's important and that it has to be integrated into communities and neighborhoods and that it is actually part of your, it's part of your, and, and chambers of commerce and your businesses recognize that it's an un, important aspect of your prosperity. Um, and because, you know, libraries breed talent and educated people go on to do greater and better things. So hmm. hope that, I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Don't have all the answers. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Those are very helpful. But the second question that I also have is, since Metrolinx, you are, you are sort of chief planning officer of Metrolinx, public transport... Only for, only for five more days. Five more days. <laughs> Fair enough. But with your experience, you can answer this. Uh, public transport has become a huge election issue in Pakistan of the last two cycles. Uh, the, the last government, I guess, they built... A metro system in Lahore, which has now become very, very uh, the bus, metro bus, the bus trans road transport system in Lahore, which served 100,000 people. It was built on platforms and uh, it cost about a billion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And now then they went ahead and built it in other cities too. Now, at that rate, the way I look at it, if 100,000 people are going to be served by a billion dollars, 13 million are going to require $130 billion. We've already got a debt problem and we've got several cities that are worth, uh, that are well over a million people. There are 220 million people. So you can imagine what the density and the population in cities is. I don't think we, I don't think we can afford that kind of public transport. So what do we do for public transport? So here's an interesting, so I'm not an economics expert or anything, but here's an interesting thing that happened uh, when we did the first plan and we presented it and we did a, a very, you know, an estimate of the scale of the investment that would be required over the next 20, 25 years. And we said it was going to be $50 billion and everyone fell off their seat. We can't, we'll never be able to find that money. Uh, that's too expensive. This is a pie in the sky. It'll never happen. And then we said, yeah, it's a lot of money. Sounds like a lot, but let me just, so we broke it down. That's the cost of, so we have a coffee place here called Tim Hortons. It's the cost of a medium-sized coffee. If everybody put aside every day what they're spending on a medium-sized coffee, that's, how, that's what it is. That's the cost, right? And so we broke it down. So that was number one, helping people understand that it's, it, it sounds like a lot, but let's break it down. So that's number one, just mentally. The second thing the government did in the past, when it was funding projects, the provincial or federal government would say, here's a project, it's X, at that time it was hundreds of millions, not billions. And here, we'll give you this money. You take the money, you build it. We'll show up for the ribbon cutting and it's yours, it's your asset. And if you're an accountant or anyone in finance, your books are taking that hit that one time. So what did the government do? The government said, if we have to afford it, we're going to have to amortize over many, many years as if you were going to buy a house and take out a mortgage at the bank. You can't afford it. It's too much. Mm -hmm. But the only difference now, in order for us to, the way the banking rules, finance rules work, we will have to own that asset, mm -hmm. which is a big difference. And not the municipality only. So now not only do we own the asset, we own the responsibility of the operating. 
and we said to the municipalities, okay, this is a partnership. We have the capacity to amortize in these large amounts so that it doesn't show up as big chunks on our books and we can afford it, but you have to partner with us on the operating and maintenance costs. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're going to switch to a different procurement model uh, and not the way you would normally do it because you know we're going to bring in experts and and the co- we're going to see how we can kind of rationalize the costs. But it's going to be a P3 model and um, reduce the amount of um, um, change change orders that cause escalation of projects because you know your billion dollar project. I don't know what the early estimates are, but guaranteed they escalated in price because they weren't necessarily managing uh, the project costs well enough. And that's a, it's a pervasive issue around the world. So I think um, th- those were one of the issues that uh, helped the government afford it. And, you know, and then they went to the federal government to ask for money. They, they asked the, the municipal governments to pitch in what they could. And, um, and then they started, you know, we, after our plan, they, they felt comfortable uh, we, as an organization, where it was brand new, but we created the pa- capacity to do the first big investment. It was 9.6 billion. And over the last 12 and a half years that I've been there, we have continued to build the capacity to do good projects based on solid evidence, business case, all this sort of investment in capacity and talent that builds trust to want governments to invest more. And so I think I think that's part of, of how you have to ad- how we've addressed it. Okay, final question before I go take some questions from the floor. What would you say should be a policy for cars in a city like Lahore with 13 million people? Because we have absolutely uh, freedom to go anywhere, do anything with you like in a car. I can park my car wherever I like within the middle of the road or wherever. It's no problem. Well. I think you need to um, value it financially. So pay, you know, we have pay parking street. No, if you want to park on the street, you have to pay. It's not free. Um, And you, the cost of parking a car in downtown Toronto is exorbitant. (laughs) And so um, a lot of people will take the train because it just doesn't make financial sense. Now that only works if you have a good, well-operating rail system that's reliable and that I can, you know, wear my business suit and feel unencumbered and com- you know, it's a right temperature and it's comfortable. It can't be, you know, you know, messy, sweaty. Um, and, and cause I'm competing with this beautiful air conditioned little thing that'll take me door to door. So I think, um, I think you, you have to, you know, the true cost of running a car is not, it's, you know, we did this math about the cost of owning a car, the car insurance, if I have to park the car against the cost and convenience of transit. That's you have to create a transit system that offers that option, but you have to create the disbenefits and the true costs. You know, people drive on a road uh, that they, they that seems free, but it's not free. Somebody's paying for the road, somebody's maintaining the road, but uh, automobile drivers don't pay that cost. It, whereas you get on a train, you're paying something. And so I think that's always been one of the issues. It's part of the public debate around congestion fees and toll roads. Hmm. Right? Are, are you uh, and, and congestion fees in Canada? And we don't, No, no. We had a, we, we've had a long debate around the notion of congestion fees in the city. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, one mayor lost an election uh, proposing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very difficult political piece. It makes, I mean, it, you know, in London, England, they have a congestion fee. New York tried to in institute one and then it got shot down. Uh, we have a couple toll roads, not a lot. Um, and they are congestion free. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it, that also creates, I think, one of the issues with, with these tolls and fees is this kind of question of inequity. Right? You can only use this road if you can afford it. Right. I can only have this. And so, you know, that's where, you know, the capital market system and the whole notion of socialism sort of clash when you're trying to reconcile these two things. Yeah. Okay, let me take three questions, and I know you have to go, so I'll let you go. Uh, Yaz Ahmed. Thank you, sir. A very nice presentation. I have a comment related to the Pakistani cities. In Pakistan, we do not have a capabilities to develop the city properly in public sector. We neither have financial resources nor we have professional teams to develop the cities. Despite of that, our PM Imran Khan is interested, really interested to build five million houses. Please get nearer the mic. A little better. Zara, you'll have to get a little closer. Go ahead. Okay. In Pakistan, we do not have a capabilities to develop the cities properly in public sector. We neither have financial resources nor we have professional team to develop the cities. But despite of that, our PM is keenly interested to build 5 million houses. How we can do it? Okay, great. Uh, uh, Leslie, if you can just I'll give all the questions to you at the same time. So if you could just okay, that. okay, all right. Undus Raza. Sundus Raza. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, everybody. Um, just uh, um, a few comments and um, just have a, and one question to Leslie. Um, as I'm working um, in, in uh, towards the collaborative governance and all, all all of these things in my PhD, I have few uh, comments to make first. First of all, uh, when we're talking about the Pakistani cities, because I have um, the, the view of both uh, developed country cities and developing country cities. So I think so that retrofitting would be a very nice concept to be implemented in Pakistan. And we need to prioritize that what we need to do first, whether we need to tackle transport system first, mobility first, or we need to go for the energy staffed city first because the energy is a is a huge problem in our cities also so we need to uh, prioritize all these things together and uh, one of the very good model for um for cities which uh, most of the european countries are doing is creating small energy markets within cities where they uh, retrofit buildings inside the cities and the consumers that turns into producers. So there's a term called as prosumers and there's a small energy market which is uh, created within the city. So this model will uh, could be quite fruitful for Pakistan also because we have a huge energy issue and this could solve uh, our energy issues. Um, secondly, coming toward the cost issue which you mentioned, uh, I think so this is the place where public partnership public-private partnership can, can come in and solve the uh, transportation and cost problems. Uh, one question I have for Leslie, that Leslie, um, uh, 
what you have developed in um, Canada. Can you just um, give me that, what was the uh, funding model? Is it a public-private partnership, partnership or it, it is a solely the government project or uh, citizens are also involved? Like what sort of uh, funding or what sort of uh, project um, is your transportation, project, uh, transportation system in mm -hmm. uh, Canada? Yeah, thank okay. you. Thank you. SM, who is SM? I don't know who SM is. SM, are you there? Okay, Malia Bangash. Hello. Uh, yes, this is Shahid Mahmood. Sir. Go ahead, SM. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Leslie. Thank you for this informative talk. Uh, just a few quick questions. Okay. Is there a particular level of density beyond which uh, densities, po positive spillovers, uh, are eclipsed by its uh, negatives, like, like, say, congestion? Is there any particular level uh, do you uh, ha has it come to your attention? Okay, the second one, uh, at this moment, there's a backlog of nine to 10 million houses, housing units in Pakistan. It has one of the fastest growing populations plus one of the fastest rural to urban migration rates. What would, what would you suggest in this kind of situation? Because Pakistani cities, they are already beyond administrative capacities. We are seeing this every day. Uh, our new cities, part of the answer. How, how do we do that? And a third one, uh, Dr. Nadeem just talked about uh, the transport issue. Uh, the transport running in Pakistan, uh, like the metros, and we just had BRT in Peshawar, one of the other cities. It's subsidized. So is subsidized transport worth it? Okay, great. Maliha, last question. Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Leslie. That was a great talk. Very informative. Really learned from it. Um, I, my question is a pretty simple one, but I think it's at the core of what we're facing today. We already have cities, which are including the mega cities and your peripheral or smaller cities, which are, you know, which are urban hubs, which are very haphazardly, uh, they've just come up. So whether it's housing or it's commercial areas, they've just haphazardly been uh, developed. Now we're already in that situation. So what does one do in your uh, experience to s tackle that problem? I know talking about new things is different, but what if you already have something that's functioning? How do you improve that? Thank you. Leslie, I'll hand it back to you, but I'll add just one more question. Our Prime Minister, this government has fought on the mandate of building 5 million new houses. What strategies would you suggest to build 5 million houses? And should the public sector do it or should the private sector do it? Leslie, over to you. Thank you. Um, that's a lot of questions. So let me try and go at them one at a time as best I can. So the first question was about capability in the public sector and expertise and professionalism. I, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, talent attracts talent. And so what I would say, I, I had the fortune when I started to work at the provincial government, it was a, a small startup uh, for to uh, where the government said, we're going to address the issue of growth management and we're going to start a secretariat. And they hired um, from within someone who was a champion for it, who they identified it. And then that person hired where, because it's never that there's no talent, it's just you haven't found it and looking for it. And so we gathered together a, an A-team who then had to work within the bureaucracy 
to move this agenda forward. And we had a good political support. So when there's no capability or seemingly no capability, you have to create the, the political push, the, you know, the, the sort of special, you know, I, we use the term like flash mob or, um, you know, the, the kind of virtual team that you empower and you have to draw from other places where you know the expertise. And it may not only be from within government, government will then decide I'm gonna second this person from this organization and we're gonna create the team and they're the, gonna be empowered. So that, um, and then that uh, talent begins to generate an understanding and trust that the public sector actually can do good things. Uh, the people there are passionate about what they're being asked to do and it will attract more and more and more. So I that that's that's I I can't I don't know that you can solve the whole thing overnight, but you have to start from a nexus that is empowered that have the expertise and the ability. The second was the question of retrofitting. So the and and energy management and you know it's interesting the city of Toronto and the region has a whole it, it just, its structure is interestingly enough in the 60s and 70s there were a number of kind of suburban tower blocks that were built um, that are, you know, some of them are near transit, some aren't. Uh, but we have this huge supply of tower blocks, all of which built in the 60s and 70s were huge energy sinkholes. Like they were buildings, you know, no good, you know, we have winter, so they were not well insulated so far. The city and led by a couple individuals in particular, and you might want to consider having uh, Graham Stort from ERA come and talk to you, we created the Tower Renewal Program, where the city basically, uh, these were mostly privately owned uh, large uh, apartment towers, went through a whole process of supporting and funding and uh, you know, subsidizing, retrofitting of those buildings to actually be more energy conserving, both on the, the technical mechanical systems. And then in doing that, starting to introduce waste management, mechanisms, recycling into that, uh, those um, buildings. And we've been going through that program for several years now, and it has been very, very successful. That's the only one kind of parallel that I can think of uh, in terms of, um, uh, there's a question about who pays. Um, in most of our transit program, it is the provincial government that is the primary funder. Uh, we do get some support from the national government um, and what I would call a different kind of in-kind or related technical support from the municipalities. Um, so it's funded that way. It's the P3s, it's financed from some private sector financing. So there's the difference between funding and financing. Funding is who's paying for it. Financing is, as with some of these projects, is the upfront capital investment. Uh, but it'll get paid back by the private sector over time. Um, there's a question about, are there limits to density or is there such a thing as a good level of congestion or no congestion? You know what, it it's very much depends on the city. Um, that being said, congestion is actually an indicator of economic prosperity. If you went to a town, and there are towns and cities like this in parts of North America and Canada, where there's no congestion, it's like tumbleweeds in the street, that is actually not a good indicator. You do want a degree of congestion. Uh, you just don't want standstill congestion all the time. And we haven't really measured it, so it's a, it's a good question. There's an ongoing constant debate and recalibration about housing and commercial density, so land use density, what is the right uh, uh, piece 
and how do you grow it and what are the limits? And density is more an issue of not so much the number, but how quickly are you going to introduce that density? If it's going to come gradually over time, then you can build with that gradual intensification, the infrastructure to support that density, that's the sweet spot. But if you are, you know, a sudden surge of density and you don't have the investment to support the density, that, that's probably not good density, as, as if it were to use those terms. Um, there is a question about um, new cities versus um, uh, investment in existing to meet housing demands, you know, in, in terms of the uh, migration from rural to urban areas. I think um, there is a lot of infill that is happening in the city of Toronto. It's actually quite, uh, because as, uh, you know, the demand increases in the more urbanized area, the value of the land becomes more and more critical and developers have become more and more creative uh, with what they have. We have seen a lot of, um, even in the way that people are working and the future of work, the kind of density that can be uh, created within a building itself. So we have lots of um, office buildings that were built in the 80s or 90s with the more traditional big uh, uh, you know, uh, cubicles and a lot of the trend towards more shared space, hoteling space means that the dense, we can intensify commercial space as well. Um, you know, micro units and small units and big units and that mix has also enabled people to kind of um, create more density. A lot of laneway housing, we've, we've uh, started to see a bigger investment in laneway housing utilizing uh, back lanes uh, um, to create more uh, to smaller units. So there's a, there's a lot that you can look at for intensification. Someone asked about the subsidizing transit. So in North America, uh, generally speaking, the average public transit agency is subsidized somewhere in the order of 30 to 40% on the operating side. Uh, we've been fortunate at Metrolinx and our GO commuter rail system historically has been at about an 80% uh, um, recovery from the cash, from the fare box, which is about a 20% re um, uh, recovery, um, uh, subsidy, sorry. Uh, the subway system is about a 25% subsidy. Um, this is all pre-COVID numbers. But we do know, because in places like uh, London, there are areas where um, uh, transit is not subsidized. So there are business models that you can create uh, to move. And, and we have been decreasing our, our subsidy reliance by creating a whole new set of efficiencies within the system itself, changing our operating model, um, uh, taking on a more business-like commercial approach to our uh, system. And that has enabled us to be sort of chipping away. We have a business plan. I mean, it's a lot different now with COVID because we've lost, we lost at the beginning of the lockdown, something like 90% of our ridership, which equates to quite a lot of revenue. But we had been on a trajectory of increasing service, refining. We had all our staff going through Lean Sigma training to create efficiencies with it. And that has, uh, so we believe that it is possible to reduce that subsidy but the norm is uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, partly because transit systems also support what I would call lower performing uh, routes uh, because they have to give access to a number of people for whom uh, uh, it, it's not necessarily high volume or mass transit uh, volumes. Um, let me see if I can get through all these questions. Um, the, there's a question about 
the randomness or unplanned um, centers? And how do you get to a state of better organization? So I think um, there, you know, and I grew up in a place, Trinidad, there's very limited planning regulation, or even if there is regulation, there's no enforcement or penalty for following the law. Um, I think that's, that's one of the most foundational things. We have the, um, you know, since the 40s, a planning act that is in force that requires municipalities uh, to conform with certain uh, planning uh, principles and guidelines. And, um, you know, there is no penalty per se for not conforming, but because the provincial government and the federal governments give and fund certain things in municipalities, they can not invest where municipalities are not conforming. And that has been uh, one of the key things is if you are um, investing as a higher, you know, the higher levels of government or even a municipality, if you, if you direct your money to your strategy and your public policy, for the, when people see that they're not going to get the amenities or the pieces, even if they're following up what I would call a more random rule, they will shift their ways. Because what, you know, uh, money is an incredible uh, motivator and driver. So you can use those kinds of financial incentives if you don't have the ability to create the legislative uh, um, measures or the enforcement of those legislation. Um, and then I think the last question, I, my handwriting kind of fell apart here, is about new housing or oh, the prime minister's desire to um, generate more housing and how, how or how we should approach it or what you should be thinking about it. I think um, oh, there's so much to think about how, but I would say, you know, given the discussion we're having now, um, first trying to direct where you're investing your housing to the locations that have the most capability in terms of amenities to support a good quality of life. So if you've got a, uh, you know, a transit hub, but it's like, you know, all sitting by itself, Transit-oriented development talks about investing near transit uh, and leveraging that. Or if there's schools or universities that are located in one place, you know, invest near to those hubs in, in terms of what's existing or create new ones. And that it's not just housing for the sake of housing, but it's, your, it's housing that creates communities, complete communities. And if you make that part of your lens, I think that'll be important. The other thing I would say is that the diversity of housing types is very important because the diversity of housing types, sizes, scale, designing for different economic means is part of that complete community as well. That you're not creating gated communities uh, of a monolithic uh, economic type. We have one of our neighborhoods here near where I live, the St. Lawrence neighborhood, which was built in the 70s on that model where it's got, um, uh, townhouses um, um, uh, owned, you know, where people freehold ownership, uh, condominium, stack townhouses, co-ops, subsidized housing, but it's got parks, a school, and everybody's living together. And that's what you kind of strive for at a scale that's human. That would be, I don't, I mean, these are just my musings. You guys, for, the last thing I would say is, you know your country and your city best. Nothing that we're doing in Toronto, and, and, and it, it always, you know, people always say, I went to London and we should do this in Toronto. And, 
oh, I went to Copenhagen and we should be like Denmark. And I think the key to know is you can hear what I say, but you need to translate it in the made in Pakistan version, what everybody else is doing. So take the best of everybody else and you best us. I look forward to seeing Pakistan rise above that and best us in what we've done. And you can do it. Oh, can't hear you. You're on mute. <laughs> Still on mute. I said, thank you, Leslie. Thank you very much. But before I let you go, I want to ask you this question, which is very important. Did you know Jane Jacobs? Because she is really a remarkable lady. And the reason I discovered cities is by reading her books. So please. Yes. So, you know, I did know Jane Jacobs. I had met her. And what's even more cool is when I graduated from university and the first apartment I lived on, I lived, uh, rented an apartment on the ground floor of a house on Alberni Street in the annex in Toronto. And she lived down the street from me. So I would walk to work and she'd be, or come home from work, she'd be sitting on her veranda with her mm -hmm. husband in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. She was a remarkable person. We call her Saint Jane in Toronto. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. She opened up our eyes in Pakistan as well. And I think she's somebody that I recommend to all my students to learn from and to read her books. So Leslie, you have touched our hearts and you have helped Pakistan think through many things. I think uh, for that, I'll be grateful to you. We shall keep you engaged in civic action. Maybe you can help us more in your new position. And um, I agree with you, cities are the the place where history is made. Cities are where humanity resides. And city is the most human, human thing that we can imagine. It is the most creative thing we can imagine. Unfortunately, the problem is your profession in Pakistan still does not understand that city planning in the world has changed, that things have changed, and that we must have more human cities and not just cities that are what I call Lego cities. We are making Lego cities where we are telling people what to do and where to do it, which is, uh, to my mind, um, I find it very uncomfortable, but there it is. So thank you, Leslie, and thank you, Zoya, for bringing Leslie to us. And great, we are grateful to you, Zoya, for doing a great internship with us. Thank you all. Goodbye. We shall see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you very you. much. Take care. Bye-bye.